Okay, I believe we're ready to begin our studies. Uh, I realize that this is uh, the Christmas season and we are fortunately uh, dealing with a passage of scripture that has everything to do with that subject. Um, last Sunday, the title of the message was High Noon, and this week's message is the same. It's just going to be part two. I never really got around to explain why it was called High Noon, but I'd like to draw your attention to the first six verses of uh, John chapter 4, John chapter 4, the first six verses, and we'll read that. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. This sixth verse is the basis for the title of the message. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour, the sixth hour. Well, the sixth hour in the reckoning of time, as we read it in the scripture here, uh, is high noon. It's 12 o'clock. Uh, the Lord Jesus actually hung upon the cross from the third hour, which would be nine o'clock until three in the afternoon when he was actually crucified. And so when you read those, uh, those times in scripture, uh, you have to understand that the, the clock starts at six in the morning, uh, according to our time. And the third hour, be three hours later, be nine o'clock. And so the sixth hour would be high noon. And the significance of this is God is going to illumine the mind of every single person that is born into the world with the same capacity to understand that the angels had when he created them. I mean, we, I think we looked at this over in Ezekiel 28 when God created the angels. He created them in the light, in the light of a perfect understanding of his identity and who he was. And uh, so when Lucifer was created, he was created full of wisdom, full of wisdom, full of understanding. Well, when you begin to study John, uh, John's gospel, 
In the, the first chapter, the Lord says, I think it's in the ninth verse, this is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Well, how much light? How much light? High noon light. Well, what was he fixing to do? He was fixing to witness to a woman, a Samaritan woman. And she was going to meet him at high noon. And she was going to get saved. Folks, that's the significance of this. This is why I've entitled these two messages, High Noon. So I wanted to go ahead and explain this to you because I have a tendency to get excited about so many different thoughts that emerge out of these passages. It seems like it takes forever to really get to the title sometimes even of the message. And I'm sure that those that listen on sermon audio, they'll see a title that I'll give a message and then they listen to the message and they, they never find out why it was even entitled that. And so a person that doesn't follow along uh, out there in, uh, you know, television land or whatever, computer world, uh, a lot of times they're not going to follow the logic of why things are presented the way they are unless they stay on top of it and the Lord blesses them with a memory to remember some of these things. But I'm telling you, the Bible is the most exciting book that's ever been written. It is absolutely amazing to me. Every time I sit down and study the Bible, I learn things that I've never seen before in my life. I think that one of the things that the Lord was referring to in Daniel chapter 12 when he said that in the last days knowledge would increase, he was not just talking about technological knowledge, which is increased. He's talking about the capacity of people to understand more than they've ever understood before out of this book. That's what he's talking about. And I'm telling you, as somebody that has studied this book every day, every day, for years, I'm learning things that I have never seen before in my life. Uh, and it's right out of the book. I'm not learning it out of a commentary. I'm learning it right out of this book. And I believe so are you. I, I talk to people every once in a while, especially at cottage prayer meeting when we sit around and we talk to one another. And I talk, um, uh, taking turns, uh, sharing different things that we've been reading about and and the excitement sometimes on the faces of people as they go into something that they have just learned from Scripture. And it's, uh, it's, it's just amazing. And so in the last days, knowledge shall increase of this book. 
And isn't that really very logical when you think about it? God gave us this book to understand. And he wants us to understand it. And he says the only way you're going to understand it is study. You're going to have to have a desire to understand it or you will not understand it. And so I think the greatest blessing in life is to discover the treasure that this book is right here. There is nothing else in the way of possessions or relationships. There is nothing to compare to the treasure of this book. Folks, apart from this book, hope is impossible. Apart from the message of this book, Knowledge of the truth is impossible. Absolutely impossible. Apart from what the Lord took the initiative to do, salvation is absolutely impossible. And these are some of the thoughts that we're going to look into. I want to take one little sidetrack to just mention this because some of you may have seen this on the YouTube, that's where I first ran across it, was uh, something concerning Donald Trump. Did any of you see that the Senate acquitted Donald Trump in the impeachment effort of the House and Senate? Well, they acquitted him. And I think it's interesting to note that Tom Tillis of North Carolina voted to convict. Can you imagine that? But they could not get the uh, three-fourths majority, I think that's what they had to have to impeach him. And they fell short. I think it was about 18 votes. I, it was a, a good margin that they uh, acquitted him. So I think that's amazing, and, and I think that what we're seeing when things look so dark and so discouraging in life, and especially in our own country politically when we see the, the moral decline and the corruption of our own government, if the Lord did not give us every once in a while evidence of his involvement, evidence of his involvement in what is going on, I think we would just wither up. We would just wither up and wither away. David said, I had fainted, except I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I've thought about that many times uh, over the years. Um, another thought as we're getting into this high noon message is, is how desperate the human condition is according to the message of this book. 
I have spoken about this fact now numbers of times that the message from heaven is horrible. I have made mention of the fact that the Bible is the scariest book I've ever read, and it is. We have no idea. Even when we study the Bible for years, we are still looking into how scarcely anybody is ever saved. How scarcely. And the eternal future that would await a person that doesn't get saved is horrible. What this Bible says. That there's none good. Not one. There's none that even seek after God. Romans chapter 3. They've all gone out of the way. They become unprofitable. That's our condition. Every one of us. And um, so the likelihood of being saved, according to the message of the Bible, is it's impossible. It's impossible to be saved. Absolutely impossible for a person to get saved. There's several things that came to my mind as I was thinking about this. You remember in Luke chapter 18, the Lord was dealing with a rich ruler. And he wanted to know what he had to do to have eternal life. And he called the Lord good master. And the Lord sort of educated him about Romans chapter 3. By saying there's none good but one, that is God. Folks, it's very important for us as we read the scriptures to own it personally. We got to own that statement, none good. I think it's good to get up every day and remind ourselves as we commune with our own mind and heart and we say to ourselves what God says, we're not good. I think it's good to practice saying, I am not a good person. I think that's healthy to say that. To, to say, I am not a righteous person. I am not a good person. It's a struggle for me to seek after God because I'm so drawn by the world and my own selfish interest. It's good for us to admit that every day because we are affected by that every day. A person that has humility is going to admit it. They're going to admit that, that that's true. That we are drawn to the world with the power of the law of gravity that always pulls us down to the world. And that's exactly how we struggle every day of our life, but we need to own it, we need to realize it. So the Lord tells the rich ruler, here's none good but one, that is God. And he tells him that he lacks 
one thing. He lacks just one thing. And it's not selling everything that he has and giving to the poor. It was not, that's two things. No, he said you lack one thing. And the word is me. Come and follow me. That's the only thing you lack is me. For a person to be saved, they have to have me as their life. Me as their life. I have to be dwelling in you, and you have to receive the gift of God, which is the only way you can get it. God has to give it to you, but you have to want it. You have to exercise your free will to want Christ's life in the place of your life. And the only way this is going to happen is you're going to have to hate your life. You're going to have to hate it. You're going to have to hate it with the reasons that I give you to hate it. Because you're going to have to see yourself as you really are. A hell-deserving monster of iniquity, that's what you are. A person that deserves to burn in the lake of fire for all eternity to come, that's you. We have to own that. We have to own that. We have to grow to hate our life because we know it's true. We know that it's true. We, we hate our life because we know there's nothing we can do about our condition. We cannot educate ourselves. We cannot do any kind of work whatsoever to change this nature and this condition. I don't care how many times you walk down the aisle, how many times you get baptized, you will never be able to change your nature. Never be able to do it. And so God has to recreate you. And this is what he was teaching Nicodemus. I'm going to have to recreate you altogether. Because to the very core of your being, starting with your nature, you're marred. You're marred. As a result of your own nature and your own will, you're marred. And it would be impossible for me to ever have anything to do with you. The only way that I could ever have anything to do with you is you would have to be holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in my sight for all eternity without the possibility of ever sinning one time for all eternity. <laughs> Folks, that is the standard that a person has to have and achieve in order to go to heaven, is what was just said. And we can't achieve it ever. It's impossible. God has to give it to us as a gift. On the way you have. And so impossibility is written all over the scripture. Salvation for man is absolutely impossible. 
And the Lord illustrates it in a number of different ways. And one of them is in the birth of John the Baptist. John the Baptist had a mother and father, Zacharias and Elizabeth. And uh, they were too old to have children. It was impossible for them to have children until God shows up with his messenger in the messenger of his angel Gabriel. And Gabriel says to Zacharias, uh, your prayer has been heard. Your wife has wanted a child of her own her whole life. And I'm here to give her an answer to her prayer. And she's going to have a baby. It's going to be a son. I'm going to tell you the gender already. It's going to be a son. And his name is going to be John. You're going to call his name John. And Zacharias questioned the angel. I said, how can this happen? This is impossible. Same thing with Abraham and Sarah. This is impossible. We're too old to have children. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. What is he trying to teach us? He's trying to teach us a deeper understanding of his encounter with the rich ruler. In that whole passage, the Lord is saying, and he brings us to this one climatic statement, with men it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That point is illustrated over and over again in Scripture. And it's illustrated in the case with the birth of John the Baptist. His birth was impossible. But not with God. And what God promises, <clears throat> he is able to perform. He sure is. This is why... We need the faith of God rather than human faith that we work on every day so that it eventually gets strong enough that we can believe that we're saved. Folks, that is a huge mistake. The faith of this Bible, saving faith, is not bottom up. It's top down. That's how you understand Hebrews chapter 12, it is, he is the author and finisher of our faith. Okay, if he's the author of it, then it's top-down faith. And so entering into the doctrine of eternal security and being able to rest in your soul is having the faith that God has in himself to do what he says he can do. He can give us his righteousness as a free gift. Now, I know, and I'm well aware, that I have repeated this over and over again. And guess what? As long as I am teaching, I'm going to keep on repeating it. Because I'm telling you that what you're hearing right now is the key, the key 
to understanding so many things in this amazing book. These are the keys. And if we've got the keys, then we'll be able to go out here and help other people. And without this kind of understanding, you can't do it. You cannot help a person that's struggling with assurance of salvation if you do not understand these things, not from me, out of the book. It's in the scripture. This is what it's teaching. And so why was John the Baptist able to be born in a situation where mom and dad were past the age to the point that it was impossible because with God all things are possible. And that's what the Lord wants us to understand about his encounter with the rich ruler. With men it's impossible. Okay, the other thing that was impossible that we read about in Luke's gospel it's actually chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 26 through 37, is a woman having a child without uh, a relation with her husband. In other words, a virgin birth. Who's ever heard of a woman just walking around, all of a sudden she says, I'm going to have a child. I'm going to have a child. And there's no physical reason to explain the possibility of that. This is the significance of the virgin birth. And this is why I told you at the beginning of this message, <clears throat> we just happen to be dealing with a portion of Scripture that is right smack dab in the middle of the Christmas record, the historical record. And what it all means. Another thing that's impossible, at least from our perspective, <clears throat> is what it tells us in, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 44. And that is how John the Baptist, as an unborn baby, leaped in his mother's womb for joy. The first time that I saw that, my eyes were drawn to the word joy. And I sat there and I pondered that for just a few seconds, really. It didn't take long at all. And the first thought that came to my mind was joy is not a reflex. Joy is an intellectual emotion. That's what it is, an intellectual emotion. And so what the scripture is teaching us is that an unborn baby can have intellectual emotion. There is no way you can say that that's not true. There's no way. That is the joy of studying the scriptures and believing God and taking him at his word, every word, every word. You have to study every word. 
And when you focus on that word joy, listen, God, the God of heaven, inspired that verse. Luke chapter 1 and verse 44. John the Baptist, as a baby, leaped in his mother's womb for joy. Over what? Another baby <clears throat> in his mother's womb called Mary, who was actually six months younger than John the Baptist. And so here we are, we're talking about unborn babies, unborn humans, very much alive, intellectually exchanging some kind of communication. And so people read this and they say, this is just a mystery that's so far beyond our understanding, we can't ever make sense out of it. Well, I'll tell you what, if you keep reading the Bible, you can make sense out of it. And the way the Lord helped me make sense out of it was Zechariah 4.10. So, again, I repeat myself. Who has despised the day of small things? Who is the person that says an unborn baby cannot possibly have intellectual understanding because they haven't ever gone to kindergarten. They've never gone through first grade. They've never finished elementary school. They never finished high school. They never went to college. They never went to the seminary to study eschatology. Exegesis. All these complicated terms that we have in the Bible, justification, sanctification, purification. Folks, you do not need all of this to be saved. That's the message of the Bible. What do you need to know to be saved? Have you ever thought about it? There are a lot of preachers that'll tell you what you got to know to be saved. You got to go down that Roman road. You got to repeat after me. You got to say that you understand this. You agree with it, and all this. That is not what the Bible teaches. Absolutely, it is not what the Bible teaches. If you want to get close to understanding what the Bible does teach, it's Psalm 34 and verse 18. The Lord is nigh unto those. That are a broken heart and save as such as be a, a contrite spirit. There's not one word in that about a Romans road or understanding these deep theological terms that do uh, serve to educate us deeper into what the Lord has done. No question about that. I thank God for every book that I have in my office and I've got hundreds of them I'm thankful for every writer that sat down and studied for years and I was able to learn in just a little while what it took them a lifetime to learn I'm thankful for every one of them I'm thankful for every bit of depth 
that the Lord has ever been pleased to give me in understanding his word. But I'll tell you this. You don't need any more to have the hope of heaven than the thief on the cross had who was likely a person that had been a criminal his entire life. He was a thief that deserved death in a legitimate court. He sure was. And the Romans were going to put him to death and did. And they tied him up there on that cross. And he hung there till he died because he deserved to die. There's no indication he ever went to church. We don't know, but there's no indication that he did. Every indication is he lived the life of a criminal, a hell-deserving criminal his entire life. And hanging up there where he could do nothing, he couldn't go to church. He couldn't start being different. He could not do any works. He couldn't go anywhere. All he could do was believe. That's all he could do, believe. Believe what? Believe what you and I have to believe to go to heaven. We have to believe God. That with him all things are possible. And I don't care who you are. I don't care how much education you have, how many theological degrees you hold, how many wonderful works you've ever done. It doesn't matter how good your preaching is. The only way that you can be saved is believe God. Top-down faith. Not bottom-up. Top-down. Everything, everything depends on what Jesus Christ knows and did. That's it. And after you learn to hate yourself the way you should, he then tells us I will then, Philippians uh, 2.13, it is him that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God-centeredness, not self-centeredness anymore. God-centeredness. That's first love. That's what first love is. First love is realizing that apart from him, there's nothing. There's nothing. The only way that we can have any personal significance whatsoever is for him to be in us, both willing with his mind and doing with his spirit of his good pleasure. That's first love. That is salvation, and nothing short of it is. That is salvation.
With men, it is impossible to be saved. This is the whole message behind John the Baptist. It's the whole message in what the Lord told Nicodemus. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. Now, how is that going to happen? Nicodemus didn't have a clue. Well, if you keep studying the Bible, you find out how the impossible is possible with God. Top down. Everything depends on him. Not one thing depends on you. Not one thing depends upon you or me. Not one thing. The Bible has written it this way. God has written it this way for us so that we can understand a little bit better the danger, the constant danger of the human will because that was the downfall. It was the freedom to choose. Freedom to choose. Well, the truth does not have an alternative. The only alternative to the truth is a lie. And so free will very quickly takes you to the lie. Because there's not but one way to think. And that's his thoughts. There's not but one way to live. And that's according to what's right, which is righteousness. And he has to give it to us. Or we'll never do right. We'll never think right. We'll never do right. Ever. It's top down. It has to come from him. He has to give us this enablement. Now, John chapter 14. Now listen to me carefully. John chapter 14. The Lord is talking to the disciples. And he's telling them what he's fixing to do that's going to provide the complete remedy for what we need. And I think it's the 17th verse of John chapter 14. He's going to send his spirit into the world because he's going to leave. He's going to send his spirit. And here's what he said. He said, he, that is the Holy Spirit, will be with you. And that's not all. It's going to take more than him being with you. Because you do have problems out there that are a threat that you cannot handle. And that's why it has to be with you. It has to do with the external things that affect you as a person. But he will also be in you. Why? Because the greatest threat you will ever face is in you. It's not out there to start with. It's in you. It's your self. The greatest threat anybody could ever have is their own freedom to choose. And so God sends his Holy Spirit to totally wrap it up. He puts us in a bottle, a, a, a bubble of absolute and total security. Absolute security. Inside and out. 
Not one thing can pluck us out of his hand forever. God gives us that as a gift. The gift of God. So what is impossible with man? I mean, we could be ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. If God had not come down, which is what Christmas is all about, he was born in Bethlehem's manger, had he not come down and discovered himself to us as the truth, then we would never know what truth is. He came down, grew up on this planet, 33 and a half years he lived on this planet. Historically, that's a fact. And proved his identity that he was God. He proved it. But here's what he said that makes salvation possible. He said, I am the truth. Apart from that statement, man is ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Never. Folks, that's why sitting here at Calvary Memorial Church this morning, we are one immensely blessed group of people. Of all the people on the face of this earth, we are so blessed. When we gather here in these meetings, these thoughts ought to be just emanating out from us. Thoughts of gratitude and thanksgiving for Christmas. For the fact that Christ came into this world to do for us something that was impossible apart from him. And that is the gift of everlasting life. Um, <clears throat> there's one little thought that I mentioned last week that I think is, is really sort of fascinating to me. And that was an answer to a question that was asked at college prayer meeting. And how long was it before... Um, Adam and Eve sinned after God created them. And I was pointing out to you that I learned something from Dr. Henry Marsh years ago when I first uh, started reading his material that he created everything uh, full grown with apparent age. That's his word, uh, apparent age. He didn't start with seeds. He started with what produces seed. So he created everything full grown. So when you study the Bible, you learn that full grown for a man is 30 years old. And that's you learn that by studying, uh, I think it's Leviticus or Numbers, uh, where you could not serve uh, as a Levite in the, the house of the Lord uh, except between the ages of 30 and 50. And so a mature human 
was a person who had to be 30 years old, and I believe that Adam was 30 years old in apparent age when God created him. There's no indication that he was a little boy or a little baby. He was a full-grown man. Same thing with Eve. In uh, Luke chapter 3 and verse 23, uh, there's a verse that says Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. As he began his earthly ministry of three and a half years, three and a half years. And I pointed out to you that I believe that that is God's way of teaching us when the fall took place. It was three and a half years after Adam and Eve were created. So for three and a half years, whatever happened in heaven and whatever happened on earth covered a three and a half year period of time, which is a pretty long time when you think about it. You can do a lot of stuff in three and a half years. But the reason I believe it was three and a half years before the fall is because... Uh, <clears throat> Three and a half years after the Lord began to be 30 years old, he went to the cross of Calvary and shed his blood on the cross of Calvary for them, for us to be saved. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ was the second Adam. There was a first Adam and a second Adam. And so the Lord is trying to associate in our minds the first and second Adam, when it comes to these kinds of questions. How long was it before Adam and Eve sinned against God? Well, the parallel is, after they sinned, having lived for three and a half years on the earth, the Lord Jesus killed a lamb and covered them with coats of skins. The exact period of time that the Lord lived after he was 30 years old, and remember, Adam was created full-grown, 30 years old. Jesus Christ was born as a little baby. But it's with great significance that the Bible says that when he began to be about 30 years old, he starts out his three-and-a-half-year ministry calling the disciples and going out and doing all of the things that we read about in the four Gospels. And then he was crucified. I think there's a parallel between these things. Well, that's all I'm going to say about that. I've got about five minutes to get us into some new material here. Um, let's see what I can eliminate and what I can maybe have time to say something about. Let's talk briefly about John the Baptist in Luke chapter 7, and we won't have time to turn to it. You have to do it on your own. But you remember... We mentioned how that John the Baptist went from the heights of being the greatest 
prophet that had ever lived, to doubting, plunging into the depths of despair, sitting in prison, wondering if his whole life was a waste and he'd been totally wrong his entire life. With the question, art thou he that should come? Have I been wrong my whole life? When I announced to the world, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, have I been wrong? And even though John, in his relationship with the Lord, plunged into the depths of despair, we see in that very same passage that the Lord Jesus was not, not, not down there with him. But would immediately elevate him back to where he was. A man that God had ordained to lighten every man that cometh into the world. With a perfect understanding of who he is. Of who he is. He is the truth. He is the Savior. And so the Lord Jesus responds to the question, Art thou he that should come? By saying, This is he that I foretold about in Isaiah chapter 40 and Malachi chapter 3, I think it is, that before he was ever even close to being born, I ordained him to be the forerunner to announce to the world my identity. And this is he. This is him. And I want you to go back to John, and here's what I want you to tell him. I want you to tell him what you have seen and heard with your own eyes and with your own ears. I want you to go back and you tell him that you have seen the Lord heal a man born blind. You have seen him heal a man that could not walk. Immediately, he was able to walk. I want you to go back and tell him that I am the only one throughout human history that could immediately heal leprosy. You go back and you tell him this. I want you to go back and tell him that the deaf hear. People that have never been able to hear, I healed them on the spot. You go back and tell them that I have raised the dead, and you've seen it. You've seen this happen on several occasions. And you go back and you tell him that the gospel is preached to the poor, the people that have nothing that are without hope, they have nothing. You go back and tell them that. And then you tell him, and this is the last thing I want you to tell him, there's seven things he tells him. You go back and you tell him, blessed are those that are not offended in me. Go back and tell him. Blessed are those that are not offended in me. And all of a sudden, before the sword cut his head off. John the Baptist 
was back up into the heights. Right there with the Apostle Paul, who said, I'm betwixt two things. I do have a desire to stay here with you and minister to you. But to depart and be with Christ would be far, far better. And I believe when John the Baptist left this world, that's where he was. But now the Lord has left Jerusalem. He's traveling back up toward Galilee, and he has to go through Samaria. And there's a woman sitting on the well, a Sychar, a woman. And the Bible tells us that he must needs go through Samaria. Tremendous amount of meaning in that word must. That word must. The Lord must be lifted up. John the Baptist said, He must increase, I must decrease. But then we run into another must in the next chapter. He must needs go through Samaria. Folks, you know, I can remember that in my background. If the Lord had not come when I was at the very end of myself, Only the Lord knows the tragedy that would have followed. But there was a time in my life that the Lord must needs go find that guy, Dwight Creech. And he found me. He sure did. He knew exactly where I was, what my need was. And he knew that I was ripe for the plucking, just like he did you, if you're saved this morning. That word must needs go down through Samaria in verse 4 equally applies to you and me. Uh, and it would be her high noon experience where God promised that all men are created equal. And he gives everybody an equal opportunity when it comes to the light of the world. The light of the world. This is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Every man. There is no one that can say, well... I wasn't blessed to go to Calvary Memorial Church and hear it like they did. And nobody ever came to me. Listen, God says we're without excuse, just based on creation. We're without excuse, just based on what he has put in our conscience. And we're without excuse when it comes to the preaching of the gospel because the Lord said... This message has gone throughout the whole world. And he sees to it that it does. To the point that no one has an excuse for not getting saved. 
So next time we get together, we'll, we'll not review these things anymore. I'm going to take you right into the particulars in this uh, relationship with the woman at the well. And we're going to see how the Lord gloriously saved this woman. Gloriously saved her. Uh, sir, time is gone. Who's going to pray for us today? Yours? Okay. Heavenly Father, we are humbled to come before your word and to remember such glorious things that you're constantly breathing out. You breathed out creation, you breathed out the greatest gift, you breathed out your word just so that we could make evidence, find you. We thank you so much for your grace and mercy, and we pray, Lord, that you bless this day. And thank you so much for the, the opportunity to, to praise your name, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.